I want to introduce you to an old friend of mine. His name is Johnny Quinn. You actually probably know who Johnny Quinn is because he was the bobsledder in the Olympics who had to bust down the bathroom door in Russia to get out and make it to his event. Do you remember that story? Johnny went on to compete in the Olympics. He wrote a book called Push, and he makes his living as a speaker. He's just a, an incredibly inspirational, motivational speaker. But he came to a story brand marketing workshop early on in that transition, and he just talks about the power of clearly communicating as a marketing message what he can speak about to your audience, and he saw radical transformation. Listen to Johnny's story. So I read the story brand book first, and you know, you know, I watched uh, from a distance, and it was excellent information. I would I would implement some of the things on on some of the free trainings, but coming to the live workshop, immersing myself in the different activities and participating with other business owners with the story brand guide, that was money well spent, and I'm already seeing a massive return on my investment, which I'm very pleased about. You're where I was a couple years ago, watching from a distance, probably you know doing the free modules or downloading the PDFs. Hey, that's great. You need to get to the conference. As a small business owner who has participated in the conference, and now I'm implementing what I learned in the conference into my business and seeing my revenue continue to increase, I would encourage you to get here now. I love stories like that because Johnny and his wife just had their first baby. And of course, he's just in this phase of life where he's scaling everything up. Man, if we can give the microphone to a guy like that, I think the world's a better place. Johnny, congrats on all of your success. So we love having you as a client and alumni. If you want to see the kind of success that Johnny is experiencing, you need to clarify your message too. Come see us in Nashville, Tennessee for a StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. Go to storybrand.com. Register today. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., would you say that we have had to reinvent this company every year for the past five years? No, I would say every six months. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, how can you not see that? <laughs> yes, I would say we have had to reinvent it often. And not not the foundational pieces of no. everything, but how we structure things. We are constantly moving staff people around, giving yeah. different titles, all yeah. that kind of stuff. One of the things when, so I get to be a part of the interview process for new employees. Yeah. And what I see my job as is I, I, I take on the role of saying, if you are not willing to change at a fast pace, then that's one of the reasons you shouldn't work here. Because yeah. we work very hard to try to support everybody in the transition. We try to be very vulnerable about transitions. We try to be honest and transparent. However, there are a lot of times where a job description can change in a day because we've mm -hmm. all of a sudden decided to not move an entirely different direction as a company, but maybe with a product or a launch date or something. Because we move And it's very not haphazard. Quickly. It's just a no. quick moving thing. The same people who work at a quarter million dollar company are not the same at a five million dollar company. At least they have to transform and change. And I remember Doug Kime told me this. A buddy of mine was at Cox Communications and he kind of analyzed your company, looked at it and he said, you know, he knows where we're going. We're going to 100 million and we're at 10 million. And he said, Don, you got to understand, I've never seen a company go from 10 to 100 million with the same people in the room. Yeah. And my heart sank. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually went, no, we're all yeah. going to be there. And yeah. he said, Don, I've just never seen it. And we said that to the entire team. We got everybody in a room for a full day yeah. and said, my buddy Doug told me this. 
I want everybody in the room. The reality is there are people in the room now who won't be, yeah. but everybody who we can keep, we want to keep, and that means one thing, everybody in this room has to change. Yeah, because <laughs> the company is Because here's what they're really saying. They're really saying nobody in the, is in the room at 100 million or 10 million because it's a different skill set. Yep. So there's nothing wrong with the people in the room at 10 no. million. It's a different skill set. So I said and went, that's a leadership problem. You got to transform your culture. You got to yeah. develop the skill sets yeah. so everybody can still be in the room. Yeah. Not everybody's going to make it, but most people will, I think. And, yeah. that, and we actually made that a real core tenant yeah, we're trying, of the organization. We're working very hard to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Well, today's interview is with Les McEwen. And Les uh -huh. wrote a book called Do Scale. We had Les's son on the podcast maybe two years ago. Oh, yeah. Interviewed him in Phoenix. You remember? Yeah, yeah, Scottish yeah. accent. Uh -huh. Les has a Scottish <laughs> accent, too. But he talks about, you know, we were going to get into a lot in the interview, how to, the difference between scaling and flipping a company. Basically, you want to make your company big. Here's the road. If you want to flip the company, here's the road. It's actually a really fascinating conversation. We're scaling. We're not flipping. Yeah. <laughs> and because um, flipping is, sounds just barbaric when he gets into it. Scaling is really fun. This is what's fascinating. Now, JJ, you and I have been on a journey. You have not heard this interview yet. I have not. You're about to hear it. Here's the journey you and I were on. You came on to the company to be a facilitator. Mm -hmm. uh, to be a coach. To be a coach. Right at the beginning, yep. And then you actually facilitated part of a workshop. Then you started our private workshop division, uh -huh. put eight private workshop facilitators into really great traveling around the world doing private workshops for us, the Storyman workshop. From there, we moved you over to chief of staff. Uh-huh. And I needed a chief of staff. We figured this yep. is the best way to do it, chief of staff. A year later... And the company went from uh, six people to <laughs> well, it also went from five point six million, I think, to, to close to ten. 10 no, million. no, you're it went, welcome. It went from, you're welcome. It went from no, somewhere no. to somewhere. It doubled. Yeah, you're welcome. You totally doubled under my leadership. <laughs> under your leadership. Yep. yep. Yeah. It did that. I'll remind you constantly. And at the end of twelve months, it wasn't working anymore. Yeah, because we were a completely different company. So the hard thing was, okay, I've got to move JJ away from chief of staff. And yet he brought millions into the company. What's the deal? <laughs> and then we brought Tim on, who was already COO, but we actually brought him on into an actual functional COO, that role. Yep. That has never sat well with me because I felt like I was taking a guy out of a role because he had succeeded. And now you're <laughs> actually in a higher role. You're chief of teaching facilitation, so you're in the C-suite. But chief of staff wasn't. You were just a low-level coffee runner. <laughs> but in this interview, without even understanding our story... Yeah. Les said, the first thing you need to do is get a chief of staff to duplicate yourself. That's going to last about a year, and then they will be replaced by a COO. <laughs> really? And I just went, you're reading our mail. Yeah. It was yeah. very healing yeah, to know that, where that, you're doing it yeah, right. Yeah. You know, whenever you're scaling up or transitioning a company, it's not that it doesn't come with heavy things, right? Like yeah, you and yeah, I had moves, to sit man. in the yard, yeah, sit in the backyard <laughs> and have a eyes. very hard conversation. <laughs> and I also knew it was right. It wasn't even that like I was saying this was the wrong thing to do. But when you have the space to be able to be honest in those switches and in that growth, I think really amazing things can happen. But that's why a lot of people aren't there after 10 million to, you know, when you they go don't, from 10 to They don't to actually 100. have the hard conversations. They yep. don't say, let's transition. And, you know, the reality is, I mean, he'll get into the interview, but, you know, what, what I needed was to duplicate myself. Yeah, you I needed, needed to, to duplicate my able... kind of thinking. Yep. And we did that. We almost doubled the revenue of the company, you and I, when you were chief of staff. And then we made it so big that the two the of me can't run it. Yeah. 
And so now you got to have processes, and that's a different person. Yeah. They do not think the <laughs> yes, same. No. <laughs> they don't think like you, and they don't think, they know, definitely don't think like me. I know people will be shocked that I am not a details person, but I am not a process. But how beautiful, though, even in our friendship, that yeah. this guy would come along and go, oh, no, that was supposed that, to happen. That's how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's like supposed mm-hmm. to happen. His name is Les McEwen, wonderful Scottish accent. He's out of Washington, D.C. His book is called Do Scale. It's a roadmap to growing your company. He's just one of the wisest people I've ever sat down with. And, you know, he jokes about it here, but we always joke about it on this podcast. It's me getting free consulting that I would otherwise <laughs> yeah. have to pay thousands of dollars for. And you yeah. get to listen in. If you want to scale your company, you're going to love this conversation. You might need a chief of staff, but beware. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to give them the boot in about a year. year later. <laughs> and then you're going to need somebody else. Again, if you're looking to scale your company, this is it. And you need to send this podcast to your friends and everybody on staff because this is what's going to happen to you. We lived it. And it's true. What he's saying is true. Here's my conversation with Les McEwen. Les McEwen, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Don. Hey, I think a lot of people have a fantasy of, and not a fantasy, a real dream maybe of selling their company, and they've got to get it in shape first. They've got to either scale it up or flip it. You talk about the difference between the two in your new book, Do Scale. This is fascinating to me, and I have no intention of selling my company. I mean, maybe 10 years from now, but my theory is, if you prepare your company to sell, you're going to have a clean, lean, full-functioning, profitable company regardless, and it's going to save you a lot of frustration. So this episode isn't just for, and I imagine your book is not just for people who want to flip their company or sell their company. Your book is for anybody who wants to run a machine that actually operates great, makes good profit, and doesn't keep them up at night. Is it good for that too? Actually, the primary reason I wrote the book is for those leaders who have built what has been a great business. It's been fun up to now, but they're beginning to realize that they have a barrier to truly scaling. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about it. That barrier is actually them. We'll talk about what that all means in a minute or two. But whenever you get to the exit point, which is not really why I wrote the book, but as you say, it's very helpful for it. One of the things that massively increases the multiple you'll get if you are thinking of exiting is if the business isn't you. If the business is you, if you're a barrier or if you're a vital, vital part of the whole cog, you know, the business model depends on you, then you're not going to get as much for the business as if it is something you can just say, here it is, it functions, I love doing this, but it's time for me to step back. You'll get a cleaner exit, you won't have to stay around for three years to make sure that it all gets handed over properly and all that sort of stuff. So you're quite right. It's really helpful if you're trying to tidy up your business for sale. That's not why I wrote it. I wrote it for business leaders who said, this has been fun, but I feel like I've hit a barrier and I want to get to the next stage. I remember years ago, I had a guy walk into, well, he was one of our workshop attendees and he was an expert on scaling and selling companies. I said, give me some tips. What are my blind spots? And he said, well, one is the fact that I'm standing here talking to you. If you're in the room... (laughs) then a venture capitalist or whatever doesn't want to walk in and see me in the room because I'm not going to be around. And from really fairly soon after that, I started doing maybe the first hour and a half of the workshop, the last three hours. The only reason I do that is because I just absolutely love it. It's the most fun thing. But we have eight private workshop facilitators who go around without me. The company really operates very well without me. And I was surprised at what I got out of that. I got a lot of freedom. I got to go back to being more creative. I got to go back to writing books. So sometimes you can scale up your company, maintain the owner, keep being the owner, but you get to go back to a a great life or the life that you actually might have got you there. Right. You make a great point, one that I go into quite a bit of detail in the book, which is that 
using the concept of being the founder owner as an external go-to-market asset is a great idea. Yeah. And the ideal situation you want to get to is where you're able to roll that out as a sort of a premium thing. Oh, I'll tell you what, hey, why don't you come meet with us? You'll actually get to meet the founder owner, the CEO. You know, he's going to pop in. She's going to pop in for a little bit of time. But if what you're walking around with is an internal founder owner mindset, I'm the owner of this business. I'm the founder of this business. I get 20 votes to everybody else's one. Right. That's a barrier to growth because you're making it all about you. So yeah, use that as much as possible, but don't get trapped by the fact. In fact, one of the things that I say to folks, and you know, as you know, I, I do business growth workshops, and people give me their card all the time, say, I need to talk, da, 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 da. I need to grow my business. And I look down and it says, founder owner. I said, you know, Ted, you need to get that off. You really do. Not because it's a bad thing, but because it's limiting your mindset. You're coming in and deciding that it's all about me to some extent every day. Now, that's fun. There's no, nothing wrong with that, but settle for that. Enjoy it. You know, having a boutique business or a lifestyle business where you're the absolute, you know, somebody once said a long time ago, and it's very glib, and it's not entirely true, but it's close. Do you want to be king or you want to be rich? (laughs) (laughs) Both and. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You talk about in the book the difference between scaling and flipping a company. And so it's two kind of different mindsets. But before we get into five just excellent pieces of advice for cleaning up your company and scaling it, what is the difference between scaling and flipping? Let me make a distinction between three things. Natural growth, organic growth, we can call it that, flipping and scaling. Okay. Natural organic growth is what we go through in the early stages of developing our businesses. And it supplies, it doesn't have to be a commercial enterprise, do a lot of work with not-for-profits. So you can grow and scale cause-based, faith-based organizations just as much as you can, commercial businesses. But organic growth, natural growth is just what we do when we first start. You know, we go out, we find a product, that service that sells, we start to grab revenue. We find customers and it's organic growth. That organic growth in the early stages, it's a little bit like if you imagine a skyscraper, 160 stories high, like that one in Dubai, that's your market size. That's the size of the market you're in. Early organic growth is a little bit like going up the staircase. You know, every now and again, you can run a couple of levels, then you get exhausted, you get tired, you stop and you pause. And then you go up another level or two. It's exhausting. It's tiring. And it consumes internal resource all the time. Scaling, I define it in the book as the ability to grow to whatever size your industry will allow. And what that basically means is you walk in, you press a button in the elevator. You Mm -hmm. hit the 19th floor, the elevator. It doesn't take any of your resource away. Your mind is focused on other things. You can make this happen repeatedly. Now, the problem is this, and I'll come back to flipping in just a second or two. The problem is this. As we're building our business, the only way to grow early on, but we don't have an elevator. You've got to go up the stairs. Right. At some point, it's a stage in growth that I call whitewater. At some point, you've got to say, we have got to take, a, if we want to get to the next stage, we've got to take a completely different approach. No more making it up. No more improvising every day, all day long. We've got to put some systems and processes in place. And that's at the heart of the shift between natural organic growth, which is, hey, we get to come in every day. We do whatever the customer wants. We, we say yes to everything. 
and then deliver somehow. You know, right. we just flock. You ever watch six-year-olds play soccer? You know, it's flock ball, <laughs> right? We flock ball our way to success and people love it. And we, they get a massive, great attention. We do great things. You want to scale. If you want to get to the top of that 160-story building, you want to get to whatever size your industry will allow. You need systems and processes and to adhere to them. You need to take the darn elevator. The problem with visionary leaders like you and I, Don, is we love the thrill of coming in on Monday morning with a brilliant idea and charging up another flight of stairs with our team behind us, right? You're literally speaking to somebody who just made this mistake. Yesterday, I'm in a leadership meeting with my leaders, and I get confronted with, hey, you know, the guys who do video called and said, what in the world is this thing that Don's doing? Why am I being boxed out of this? Blah, blah, blah. And literally, it was me walking in the office going right to the developer saying, build me a landing page and put this thing on there. And Tim, my COO, said, Don, you have to come to the execution department and ask for that, not to the guy that the execution department is working with because you've caused all sorts of trouble. That's literally somebody saying, Don, you can't take the stairs anymore. You have to come take the elevator. I get that tension, but 10 years from now, if I want to sell my company, I've got to start taking the elevator. Is that the basic idea of what you're saying? You've got to get disciplined. And the problem is the higher up the totem pole you are, the more authority that you've got. And you know, the person with the most authority is the owner, the founder, the easier it is to do that. You can just charge out another couple of stairs because you've got the authority to do it. Nobody's going to say yeah, no. Yeah, and you know, to defend myself, and by the way, I'm wrong, so I'm going to defend <laughs> myself anyway. It's quicker. Yeah. I, you know, and I'm used to things happening fast, and it's time to go. Let's go. Let's go. It's quicker at the outset, and it's slower in the long run. There you go. Because what happens is you look around, and you'll see a trail of abandoned brilliant ideas. That's when you know, by the way, that you have a decision to make. You're actually implementing the initial creation right. of more great ideas than you're getting anywhere close to realizing. How many landing pages are there out there with cobwebs on them or never made it to right. the front end? Right. How many ideas do you have on a Monday morning that you get six people? You know, you, we just work stuff up. Anyway, to come back and just finish for a second and answer the original question, the difference between flipping and scaling is they're actually almost exactly the same thing, except scaling is done with the notion of building a legacy. I'm building this because I want it to be this size. I want to right. stick with it. I want to build this. My heart is in this. You can scale, never have an intention of going anywhere. Flipping is starting something with the core idea that I'm going to make this as big as it can be possibly be in order to sell it. So it is the difference between building a lovely house and, you know, buying a, a you know a rundown thing, doing it up and flipping it. You talk in the book about artificially increasing market size when you are scaling and flipping. If I wanted to flip my company, and I don't, if I wanted to flip my company Real quick, what are the numbers that I need to be paying attention to? Is it basic profit on P&L? You know, what is it that I need to be thinking about? To be honest, it depends on the industry that you're in. Yeah. If you're in tech, you can flip a business without doing anything, really, except yeah. exciting people that there's potential here. I mean, let's look at Uber. Although we all get in cars, it's a tech company, right? right. They don't own the cars. They don't do any of that. They have not ever made a profit, and they floated just before we recorded this podcast – if I remember rightly, don't hold me to this, but I'm pretty sure that their flotation documents say explicitly that they have no business plan that shows them making a profit. Uh, so you can flip a tech business with just potential. If you get some revenue, you're even better off. What happens when you're trying to flip something else is you're dropping one word, which I have in my definition of scalability, which is sustainability. What you're essentially going to do is go out and buy business. You know, you think about uh, how Amazon in the early days grew its business. 
that was not a long-term sustainable plan. If Bezos had wanted to flip, he did the right thing early on, but he actually decided to hang on in there and make it through to sustainability, and he's achieved it in a big way. So sustainability is the difference between flipping and non-flipping. You can't do the things you do to flip forever because eventually resources are going to run out. You're going to be borrowing a lot of money. You're going to be getting investors. You're essentially propping up the value of the company or the perceived value of the company if you're flipping it. You're buying market share. You're going and doing stuff at a loss in order to, to right. prove a concept and you know, hoping that somebody else will say, hey, we have deeper pockets than you or a competitor will come in and say, we've got deeper pockets than you. We can really make something of this or we just want you to go away. We don't want you. You remember that little camera that came out? I can't remember what it was called. A while back, everybody was buying one of those. It wasn't the GoPro, but I can't remember which it was. Yeah. And one of the big Californian companies just bought it and killed it. You know, just yeah. said, here's, here's a billion dollars, go away, and we'll kill this threat. So flipping is stuff that you're doing just, and there's nothing wrong with it. My heart's not in it. You know, that's not a part of business that I'm really concerned about. My heart is in building sustainable organizations, whether they're for profit or not for profit. And so that's why I define Indu scale, I define the scaling I'm talking about as sustainable growth. Well, we've got five areas that I want to talk about from your book. Again, the book is called Do Scale. The first one is don't trust your golden gut. You have to stop listening to your golden gut. Define golden gut and tell us why we can't listen to it anymore. Well, whenever uh, visionary leaders start organizations, and behind every successful organization, there's typically a visionary leader. That's somebody who thinks big picture, 30,000 feet, gets an endorphin rush when they conceptualize something, and then they hire what I call operators, people who are ruthless finishers to just get stuff done. And that VO combination is what grows businesses in the early stage. Big visionary, bunch of operators. Now, what happens in our early stages of growth, in a very technical phase of growth I call fun, (laughs) whenever we're just having fun, if you were to draw out the org chart, well, people would laugh at you for the concept of an org chart that says, but if you were to draw it, it's the visionary in the middle orchestrating these O's, these operators. Right. You know, go do this, make sure he's happy, make sure she gets that done, da-da-da-da. One of the reasons that uh, visionary leaders are successful is because their intuition is good. Their visceral management skills are very high. They make decisions in a nanosecond, and they're not at all phased at having two completely contradictory ideas in their head at one time and then deciding which one to go for at the right point. And that all works spectacularly well. In fact, it's the only way to grow early on. If you try to get too regulated early on, too process oriented, you will not get the early growth that you need. Yeah. Apparently this is true. We put a frog in a pot of lukewarm water because that's so close to its natural habitat, it'll just sit there. And apparently you can turn the temperature of the water up one degree at a time until the darn frog boils alive. It mm. doesn't realize what's happening. What happens with the success that we get is the business gets more complex just a little bit every single day. Sometimes there's a step up, but usually it's just, you know, accreting in complexity. And there comes a point, just like milk going off, where that ability to make visceral decisions begins to let you down. And the reason is simple. It's complexity. You don't see everything in your peripheral vision anymore. There are people doing stuff over there, the other side of the building or, you know, 10 states away virtually. There's shifts going on that you don't have immediate access to. But, hey, it worked up to now. You didn't change. Why would you not keep doing that? So during fun, 
you know, board meetings are right up in the elevator. You know, you get in, you punch the building, you get the button to the 13th floor, you get off, and you've decided to open an office in Chicago. And hey, it works. Two weeks later, you've got an office in Chicago. Whenever we get into the complexity of scale, that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't mean that you've lost it. It just means you don't have the information anymore. And so you start to make wrong decisions. So you talk about decentralizing your decision making. One of the things that you recommend doing is codify, codify, codify. You repeat it over in the book. Can you explain to us what codify means? How do we codify our decision making? Well, two things. One is getting shared vocabulary around a whole bunch of stuff. There's just yeah. so much stuff that we use it in business all of the time. You know, we use phrases like scale. Well, I'm defined, you know, what we mean by this. So one thing is just to get solid on some core definitions. And I go through a number of those in the book. But the key thing, if you're going to scale is this, you want to be able to replicate what you're doing without having to reinvent it every single time. And the first step in doing that is writing the darn thing down, getting you know what the smart kids call standard operating practices and policies and putting them down on paper and saying, this is how we do it. And that's easy for everybody except for the visionary leader. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I'm wired as the visionary leader. Everybody wants it. And I assume we don't need it and probably shouldn't have it, but everybody wants those processes. They sure. want them duplicatable. Sure. And to me, it's like, don't hand me a duplicatable process. It'll drive me crazy if I can't freewheel and think. Here's what I'm getting at. I can't project my desire to not have processes onto people who actually want them. They want processes. Correct. And if you want to scale, now you could stop at this point and say, no, I'm not doing any of that and accept that the business is going to be what the business is. But if you make a decision to scale, you've got to go further than saying, I accept this. We're going to put this in place. I'm going to anticipate the, where you might be going about the next section that I talk about, which is getting out of your own way. Yeah. Here's what happens is the visionary leader gets to the point where he or she says, okay, 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 I get it. I am absolutely understand. I'm 110% behind this. Apart from whatever the percentage is that involves me adhering to it. Because I'm not going to do visionary it. leader, yeah. right? I'm the secret sauce around here. You can't hold me down. If I was to just start doing cookie cutter stuff, we would die. Now, there's an element of truth in that. But here's what you've got to do. You've got to define down, define down, define down the areas you're not going to screw with anymore. All right. So I get to fly my visionary freak flag in this area, this area, this area, I commit to you, my colleagues, my team members, and all of the rest of it, I'm not going to come in and just mess up with this and this and this. So there are core stuff that you can begin to say, look, why would I mess with that? It works. And so maybe you want to keep hold of curriculum design. Maybe you want to get keep hold of, your, you know, nothing wrong saying, this is crazy. I'm going to keep hold of the website look and feel. I just don't feel I want to let go of that. That's fine, but the clearer you can be, about where you're going to go and stick your finger in, the more chance the rest of the organization has of scaling. If you just say, okay, you don't know, and I don't know what we're going to do next Monday morning, because I come on here, uh, I might do anything, then you will. And it's going to cap your business. Yeah. In my company, I've got an execution director. My execution director is checking in with most of my employees about once every two weeks, and they have a very formal meeting where they fill out kind of a worksheet. You know, what are the three things that you're working on? All this is reverse engineers from my vision, and so that's wonderful. I don't tend to meet with even my department heads anymore. I meet with them casually. You know, We're having coffee. We're walking around, but my COO is doing that. What's a good rhythm for, say, a 15-, 20-person company? That's probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast. What should the CEO be doing with their time? 
How often should they be meeting people? Should they only be meeting with department heads? Have you seen, and I realize it's contextual and it varies greatly, but what's a good healthy structure for that? I think you've got uh, a good, in fact, you're probably in a slightly accelerated position, Don, for where you're at. For a sort of 15 to 20 person business, particularly, there's going to be a big distinction between manufacturing and yeah. services, not for profit. So on a 15 to 20 person service or not for profit, and let's say a 35 to 80 person manufacturing concern, what you want to do is have, if you've got a founder owner, they should not be acting as founder owner. In other words, we just do whatever I say every day. They should be acting as CEO in essence and shifting that hat is an important thing. But what I recommend them to do is to start with a chief of staff. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to start with a COO. Start with a chief of staff, which is somebody who you're saying, you speak for me, right? You don't speak in your own right. COO speaks in their own right. If you can't get straight to CEO, which is where you've got to, and it's great, you start by getting a chief of staff and you say, you speak for me, you go to meetings in my place and whatever you say, you're speaking on my behalf. That's how you start delegating out authority and responsibility because you can feel safe. You can say, okay, I still, at the end of the day, I'm the one making the decisions. This person is just working on my behalf. Then once you've had some comfort with that for a little period of time, it may not be the same person. Typically, actually, it isn't. At that point, you want to move to CEO, COO. Sometimes it's CEO, president. I don't care what the titles are. But somebody who's making the railroads run on time. And it's between those two roles that that's where you want to have the honest discussion if you want to then get to scale, which says, hey, COO, here's a safe word you can use when I'm flying my visionary freak flag and disturbing everything to the point where it's become <laughs> <laughs> difficult. I'm going to check our conference room for bugs. I think yeah. we're listening in on our conversations. <laughs> What's funny, Les, is I had a chief of staff for one year. The company scaled to uh, you know maybe two and a half million, three million, something like that brought in a chief of staff, they almost doubled the size of the company. And what was really strange and hard for us all to figure out, and there were some sensitive conversations around it, was, wait, the chief of staff clearly worked. I mean, it doubled the revenue of the company, right. and yet this position is no longer tenable. And so then we went to a COO, doubled the company again. I'm going to have our whole team listen to this because it proves that they sort of did so well, they worked themselves out of a job and actually moved them up into the C-suite to do something else. What you just recommended worked perfectly for us in the last three years. Chief of staff moving to COO. And you were right. It was not the same person. It was a different skill set. No, it is a different skill set. And one of the reasons it works is that the visionary owner, in this case that we're talking about, was you. The initial transition, it's a transitional role, and it's important because the visionary owner doesn't feel that they're immediately giving away a whole bunch of stuff. You bring in right. a COO too early, to, particularly to a founder owner, the founder owner feels threatened, typically doesn't give enough delegated authority to the COO. The COO feels micromanaged and that they're not being given the degree of delegation that they should have. It usually doesn't work. So the transition that you've made is a really important one. The building block, which is just slightly repeating myself, but I want to use a, another phrase in here that the listeners might find helpful. The next strong element of that relationship, CEO, COO, I was talking about that safe word thing, which is only semi-joking about. The key thing is this, visionaries, good visionary leaders are excellent, great to have, vital, you can't grow without them. Their red zone, whenever things aren't going well, they become arsonists. Hmm. You want the visionary to turn up each day not the arsonist. You've got to get an airlock because part of the problem is that visionaries are driven very much by prickly epidermis. You know, if something's really irritating you, yeah. you'll think about it and it'll get to the point where, you know, 
you'll try to let it play out. You'll try to let people sort it. And then eventually it just screw it. This has got to, we've got to fix this. And the arse, it's like, you remember the incredible Hulk? You remember those days? Yes, in the yeah. Movies? And yeah. He's just started wrecking things. The visionary just turns into an arsonist and comes in with a book of matches and just sets fire to a whole bunch of stuff. Wow. That Urlock is often best done by giving the COO a good trusted space where they can say, Don, have you got a second here in the, in the conference room where we can talk about this and give you space and air to not just have everybody running up this staircase again. We'll be right back with the rest of my conversation in just a moment. Do you have a business coach? Is anybody developing you? If you don't, you're really missing out. Here's the problem. A business coach is very, very expensive. I've got a solution for you that is completely free. Just go to businessmadesimple.com and I'll send you a video every weekday morning. It's about a five minute video that just has one business tip. It's tips on stuff like how to give a speech, tips on stuff like what you need to do and be thinking about before you fire somebody, tips on how to hire somebody, tips on how to create staff unity, tips on what is the most important word that you should be using over and over in your marketing, tips on how to structure your time, tips on how to manage your energy. Every single day, a new business tip. Imagine over the course of the year of every day, you just woke up and you had kind of a morning devotion of business. So to clarify your brain about how you're going to move forward professionally and in your career, and all you had to do was sit and drink a cup of coffee and watch it. What would your life be like at the end of this year if you had over 250 different doses of wisdom? What would your life be like a year from now? It's completely free. Just go to businessmadesimple.com. That's businessmadesimple.com and sign up today. I want to go back a little bit. One, stop listening to your gut. Two, get out of your own way. And three, use the roadmap. You define it HQT. BDM, which stands for High Quality Team-Based Decision-Making. Page 92, you say you should think of it as the key that unlocks the otherwise impenetrable door standing between mere growth and the ability to scale. How do I teach my team to make great decisions? Because this is my number one fear, and it's not that they don't make great decisions. And maybe it's because I've got that founder gene, I don't know, but I tend to be very confident that my decisions are going to be the most profitable for the company. And if I'm not making those decisions, we are going to end up with massive amounts of overhead. Right. That's my biggest fear. So talk to me about how to teach and instill this ability to make high-quality decisions in, on my team. Well, I mean, as you referred, I referenced a second or two ago, Don, high-quality team-based decision-making is probably the most boring phrase that I can ever <laughs> utter, but it's the absolute single most powerful it one. It sounds like medicine to me. I mean, you're saying it's boring, but it sounds like medicine. <laughs> it doesn't sound like fun, right? But that's part of the issue. One of the things that I realize in all of the organizations that I've worked with over the years is that this is the key skill that trips organizations up who want to scale because we talked already about the visionary with the visceral decision-making, the golden gut. What are you replacing that with? You can't bring in a hundred visceral decision-makers like herding cats. You build the muscle of decision-making inside the organization. You build the ability to make decisions. And increasingly what happens is those decisions need to be made in teams, in groups. Now, a team can be just two people. But the degree to which your folks can make decisions unilaterally on their own about anything is diminishing every single day as you get more complex. They have to consult with other people. The problem is this. 
Nobody teaches anybody literally, literally, how do we make a decision? Yeah. Literally. I mean, do we do it in a room? Do we do it virtually? Do we do it in water cooler discussions? What strength do we give to data? Where are we getting our data from? When we sit down and talk about something, do you know what? Less than, I would say, one-tenth of one percent of all the organizations I've ever worked with, when I've sat with them, whether virtually or physically, when the senior team are making a decision, and I ask this question, how do you make the decision? Literally at the end of the discussion, less than one-tenth of one percent say, we do this. Hmm. It's like, ah, wow. Dawn decides, or yeah. whoever's most passionate. We take a sense in the, I don't know. It's case by case, really, when you narrow and it And you down. think about it, the Koch brothers, I mean, we all know about this Koch brothers framework. It's like 50 different elements that go into making a decision. And I looked at that, and that was my big eye opener. We don't have a framework, we developed a very simple one. You know, does it push the vision forward? Is it profitable? Is it going to increase overhead? Just little algorithms to check your math before you right. make this decision. But that's really fascinating. I think if you ask any of my staff, how do we make decisions? I think we're in that 99.9% where they say, I'm not sure. And that's another convicting thing. We're going to fix that. At the size that you're at, if the answer is, well, Don decides, then that's great. Codify that. There's, there's the first thing you can codify. Here's how we make decisions. We discuss it. And then here's Don. how we check with Don. Yeah. yeah. Here's how and then Don decides. Or, the COO decides, or the person who brings the, and this is where as businesses grow, you want to start to move to, is the supporting executive decides. So yeah. somebody brings this topic, you know, is you've got a manufacturing business and the warehouse manager wants to, you know, build another 12,000 foot extension. You bring the information, you debate it. If it's in their budget, they get to decide. What you've got to do is, doesn't matter how simple or complex it is, and it can be very simple. I use a simple process I call 4D, data, debate, decide, defer. Yeah. What's the data? Let's debate it. Let's either make a decision or defer. And by the way, somewhere around 80% of all decision-making discussions, you know within about three minutes, we shouldn't be having this discussion because we don't have the data. Right. We don't know. Don't waste time. You're building a system where red flags and warning lights can go off. Right. So that's the first thing is you just need a process. It can be the simplest process in the world. R4D is just one page. And as you say, there's the Koch brothers with their 50 things that you've got to look at. You don't want to over-process the thing. And that's the other side of you trusting your organization making good quality decisions is this. I need to just take one minute and air this out a little bit. There are four leadership styles needed to make good quality decisions in a business that's going to scale. Hmm. We've talked about the visionary. In the fun growth stage, we've got the operators as well. Right. And those are fine. That's all you need in the early organic growth that we talked about. If you want to scale, there are two more leadership styles that need to be in the mix. One is what I call the processor, and that's the number cruncher, you know, the systematizer, the person that knows what needs to happen mechanically for this to occur. And then you need a synergist. And the synergist is the person, they're really the people side of it all. Are we all on board here? Is this taking us in the right direction? Does it fulfill the company's overall goals? And that visionary operator processor synergist role, every founder owner who I've ever met who's skilled, they're the ones who are playing each of those in the early stages of the organization's yeah, yeah. growth. You then have a fear naturally as the founder owner as you begin to grow that discussions by my team are going to be too processor-like. They're going to be too robotic and not enough soul and heart in them or too operator-like. Let's just do it and screw the cost and run us into the ditch. 
And so you've got to be able to do two things. One is trust the system. We have a system for making decisions, and I've been part of putting it together so far I trust it. And secondly, trust the people. And I don't mean by that the competence of the people because that's hygiene factor 101. If you don't have competent people, it's a separate issue. You need to fix that. It's that you've got the right mix, that there's the visionary operator processor synergist view all coming into play and non-trivial decisions. I'm not talking about, you know, what theme will we have the holiday party this year? But, you know, do we want to take on this whole new product area? That's something you need a visionary operator processor synergist all looking at. And so we do a lot of work with growing companies on their skill balancing. What I'll finish with this because I can get on my hobby horse way too much. What happens in particularly in service businesses is that as the team develops in that area that you're in, I'll be prepared to bet that your team shows up with a bias to visionary synergist. Yes. That you love the gung-ho vision and you love each other and you care for each other. And the bit that's not getting enough attention is the O and the P. So your meetings are probably great fun. You come up with fantastic ideas and then a month or two months later, you say, no, did we do that? Well, you know, I would say we've got the V and the S. There's no question. We're probably 30% into the operator. It's the processor. Can you delineate between, is that the basically the CFO position? That would be one of them. You certainly want your CFO to be a processor. You don't yeah. want them to. You don't want a visionary as your CFO. I mean, yeah, and ours, we have a fractional CFO right now, so they're really not influencing our decision making. But it's anybody who's really working in the whole systems and processes area. And where you'll see them come up is when you hit that stage I call whitewater, where you begin to feel the growth pains, it's wherever you're screwing up. So bad you know, website design coding. So there'll be coders, right? You know, you sign a contract or two that just comes back to beat you. So you get some outside counsel to look at legal stuff. So it could be quality control. Anything that's linear, left brain, you know, make sure this is correct, measure twice, cut once, all of that. And of course that cuts across the whole visionary, mm-hmm. let's just say yes and make it, it happen. It slows things down, yeah. It does. That's why you don't want to bring it in too early. The problem is if you don't bring it in at all, you will slow down completely because you need systems and processes to get to the next stage. Well, this doves right into the fifth point that you've got here in the book, developing scalable people, teaching people to make decisions. That's part of it. But you know, one of the things that we discovered early on is when we hire somebody at a lower level position – we actually need to hire somebody that we see potential who could actually lead that department someday because we're growing so quickly. Right. And so we started paying people a little bit more when we hired them, knowing that there's a good chance two years from now they're going to have two or three people under them and running a division. Is that a transition to looking for more scalable people? And how do you define scalable people? Let me talk about non-scaling folks. Okay. And first of all, let me just make the point. There's no ethical judgment here. No, 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 you no, know, there's no, no value judgment. right yeah. or wrong or whatever at all. What happens during the early organic growth stage is that we need, we have to have, and therefore we reward, and rightly so, two particular styles. One is the visceral visionary, right? This is really important. We've talked about this all along the way. And the second one is the hard-charging operator. You know, the person who takes the visionary's vision isn't really that interested personally in whiteboards and blue sky thinking, but say, got it, boss. I'll make it happen. And they go make it happen. It's not going to be pretty. And they say, well, I'll make that happen, boss, but don't watch but they make it happen. They go through brick walls. Now, a number of those hard-charging operators during the early state organic growth 
become what I call big dogs in the organization. They build their own autonomy. They build their own space. They build their own loyalties. They build a massive amount of delegated authority because they've got huge sweat equity with the visionary because they helped build the business through the early stages when things were tough. And they, it's usually those big dog operators give up their evenings, give up their weekends, come home early from vacations to fix stuff. A lot of sweat equity going on there. Those two styles, which are the styles that we needed to get to where we are, Nothing wrong, no value judgment. Those are the two styles that are the barriers to scale. Hmm. The visionary, depending on their visceral gut, needs to transform into what I call a visionary synergist, a visionary who's saying, okay, I get it, but I want to work through my people. I don't want to be making every decision every day. But the single biggest challenge, it's almost always insuperable, is the big dog operator. The big dog operator is somebody who is only going to be happy working in fun with a minimum degree of systems and processes. They find systems and processes an imposition. And when you start to instill them into the organization to get to the next stage of growth, the big dog operators actually take it as a personal affront. Don't you trust me anymore? Why can we not just do it the way we've always done it? Why do I have to fill in this damn form? What do you mean I've got to enter stuff in our new proprietorial software? Another meeting? Are you kidding me? Like a big dog operator, you tell them they've got to come to a meeting. They'd rather open up a paperclip and stab themselves in the eye. And you start to hear things like, you know, I've got a job to do. You know, I've got a real job. Now, that's a non-scalable individual. No value judgment. They want to live in fun. They want to live in a minimal systems and process environment. And they have such a visceral reaction against the systems and processes that actually have never seen an organization get to scaling that hasn't had to have a very, very painful breakup with one or more big dog operators because they're just not compatible. They'll actually begin to self-harm the growth of the business to keep it the way it was with their autonomy and freedom. In a sense, the big dog operator has to go through the transformation that the visionary leader does. They have to say, because in a way, they are the execution person. They are the person getting the ball into the end zone. Right. But when you have 50 balls that need to get into the end zone every day, one person can't do that, and they don't scale themselves. Right. And it's the exact same problem, just duplicated over in a second evolution. We've got a big dog operator who I'm so grateful we sort of skipped that. We just had a, a meeting the other day, and I said, what does this person do on our staff? And they said, you know, I don't know. Let me find out. And that actually told me, okay, they delegated something a long time ago, and then things are getting done. No balls are being dropped. They've trusted them to do that. I didn't know that was a healthy thing or not. I'm thinking maybe that might have been a pretty decently healthy thing. I mean, we got to know what he's doing, but, you know. Sure. Um, a lot of those big dog operators, a lot of the times what happens is they become like director special projects, you know, something like that. It's, uh, you know, okay, right. we'll use you to fix stuff because that's what they want to do. Yeah. Right? It's actually hard. It's just based on my experience. Visionaries are more malleable. They can make the shift if they want to, if they choose to, they don't always choose to. Operators are much more hardwired. It's harder for them to shift. And particularly, I don't know, get accused of being ageist or whatever, but in my observation, once you're at about 35 or so, it's really hard for a big dog operator to make a complete shift in approach. They are to be a big dog operator. And I've seen a whole bunch of stuff happen. I've seen founder owners start new businesses solely to give the big dog operators who they love. Often these people are, you know, godparents to their kids. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, they know them really. I say, okay, I tell you what, this isn't working for you anymore. It's never going to work. We're going into, you know, somewhere that you hate. Hey, you know, I've always wanted to have a wood window business. Let's start that. We go start that wood window business. And here, I'll fund you. You know, stuff like that. It doesn't mean that you've got to 
chuck people out the door or yeah. you know throw them on the scrap paper, whatever. But unrecalcitrant big dog operators are the biggest barrier to getting to scalability from a people perspective in most organizations. Well, you know, you talk in your book about how scaling is mostly about mastering the mundane. You talk about it in chapter four. And, you know, I know you're being self-deprecating, but to me, this is an invigorating conversation. And I think it is for everybody listening. All these mundane details add up to millions and millions of top-line revenue down the road. And if you keep that in mind and just say, hey, you are costing yourself, the opportunity cost on not scaling yourself and doing what... Les is talking about here is millions of dollars. Absolutely is. And it's also your sanity because here's the thing you've got. If you're genuinely committed to scaling, you're going to have to do one of two things. You're either going to get bogged down in the mundane for the rest of your days and be unfulfilled and unsatisfied because you're not getting to fly your visionary flag. You're having to deal with this crap all the time. It's driving me crazy. That's when I get calls from people, right? Or you can build an organization that masters the mundane so that you can go back to being the visionary. You can go back to having the big picture ideas. But the majority of people that I'm working with, the reason they call me is, hey, we had this golden era. This things were great. I'm trying to get to the next stage, but we're just tripping over each other and I'm spending all my time, you know, fixing stuff. Yeah. And they don't always say stuff. <laughs> I don't always say stuff. <laughs> Les, because of your advice and the, you know, not just this book, but your whole whitewater and your whole, all that stuff is so beautiful. I've been able to structure my company, you know, chief of staff first, then we moved the chief of staff to somewhere else and we brought in a COO. What it's allowed me to do personally was every Monday, I have no appointments on my schedule. I show up at the office about 7 a.m. and I get writing done. And I feel like I did when I was 25 years old. And I haven't felt that way in a long time where I just have this freedom to be creative. If I don't get my writing done, Tuesday morning until noon is open. And Wednesday morning until noon is open. None of that possible without the advice that you're giving in this book. You're doing the right stuff. Well, thanks, Les. The book is called Do Scale. It comes out June 4th. You can pre-order it on Amazon if it's if you're listening to this before June 4th. If not, go get it right away. You can also get the first chapter of this book. Les has generously made it available. Text the word PDF or the letters PDF to 72000. That's 72000. Text PDF to 72000. You'll get the first chapter of this book. Les, will you come back next time you've got a book out? I'll come back next time you have a problem you want me to solve for free on the air. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to wait for my book. That sounds absolutely fantastic. All right, Les, thank you so much for joining us. Say hello to your wonderful son. He's just a great, great man. I love any time I get to spend with him. It's just awesome. I will indeed. Thank you, Don. There you go, JJ. That's our roadmap. It is. <laughs> we get that for free. Yeah. We I really love it so much. <laughs> and in a Scottish accent. And in a Scottish accent. <laughs> Brilliant wisdom. Yeah. And it gives me a lot of hope for the company. I mean, it really, I really think, you know, StoryBrand, I think, has $100 million potential. It has a lot more than that, but I think we scaled $100 million with everybody still in the room. You don't get there without a map. Yeah. You and I know you're wondering the whole time if you're doing it right. And you're wondering, is this supposed to be happening? You're wondering, why are you dealing with these complications? And just this interview in Les's book, Do Scale, really tell you where you are on the map. It's like kind of walking around a mall trying to figure out where you are, and you see the booth, and you go, okay, where are we again? You are here. Outside of whatever, JCPenney's. How do I get to the corn dog? That's my experience in a mall. (laughs) All right, JJ, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep, Hushed 
on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to scale up your business.